0: In the Finley Toyota Studio. It's Cofield and Company.
1: All right, here we go to Tuesday. Cofield and Company, Ari in the Finley Toyota Studios. Candy, Cofield, parts unknown. Busy day. Devontae Adams speaking right now as uh, his press conference, his intro press conference to the community and uh, Raiders fandom going down right now. So we'll get some reaction to that in just a couple of minutes. We've got uh, more bracket talk coming up later this hour. VGK's weird, bizarre, disastrous day yesterday. We'll get to that as well. So much on deck. Let's do it. So we start out with the brackets because Candy wasn't on yesterday. And I don't know how you did, Candy, but I did not do well. I think Ari might be leading in the LV Sports Network March Mania bracket contest on this show because I know Willie's in the 60s. I'm terrible. Ari had whatever 82 points means. I only got 9 of the sweet 16. So, Candy, how did you do?
2: Um, I'm trying to look my bracket up very honestly. I don't really know off the top of my head because I paid very very close attention uh when I filled this thing out. Uh, obviously. Who did you have who did you think was going to make the final? Who did you pick to win the national title? Oh, I you know as chalky as it gets uh, gonzaga is a team that if you want to go by the numbers is head and shoulders above everybody else so why why fight the numbers i never do i had gonzaga
1: arizona ucla and kansas i'm not so confident on kansas now i had arizona and ucla playing for the national title my bracket should be done as far as my national title winner but i got to get your reaction the official On the end of regulation with TCU and Arizona, we talked to several college basketball experts yesterday, and I haven't really heard a good argument for what went down being correct. Uh, There is no way TCU should not have been awarded free throws. That was a bump in midcourt. A player falls down. It went the other way. Luckily, for all of college basketball, Arizona didn't finish on a little floater because they should have shot the ball, obviously, with... You know, some time left on the clock. He tried to go in for a dunk. That was a bump and that was a foul. And TCU probably should be in the Sweet 16 right now and my Arizona Wildcats, I don't like them, but I have them for the national title, should not be eligible for the national title.
2: No. I. Here's the hard part about that play. Um, it's not nothing. And what the officials decided on was nothing. So you could choose to call it a foul if you want to call it a foul. You could call it backcourt violation if you want to call it a backcourt violation but the one thing you can't do with that is nothing because everybody just watched a player fall right. to the floor and they also right. watched him step on the line like it's one of two things it's not nothing so you know for me that keeps arizona alive my national championship game is gonzaga in kansas um i still have three of my final four alive at the moment oh, uh no. but kentucky you know, the other one Uh, Kentucky, I did not have. Kentucky, I actually had losing to Purdue. I have Purdue. Purdue is my my team from that side of the bracket. So I have Gonzaga, Purdue, Tennessee, and Kansas. Uh, So, you know, three alive, not bad. I I can live with that. All right. Not bad.
1: Not bad. So did the officials come out and make any sort of statement on that bizarro non-call?
2: You know, they passed on talking about the actual call, but there was an interesting article in The Athletic where Dana O'Neill talked to the head of officiating, J.D. Collins, who kind of laid things out in a way that he didn't really, he's really say it, but he kind of still said it. said, well, you know, our, our accuracy on things that we've called in the tournament is 96%. Our accuracy when you add in things we haven't called is 90%. Huh, interesting. So you're talking about the fact that there are no calls in there, that might not be as accurate and also talked about how the officials are evaluated after each round to determine whether or not they're going to move on. And I-, I would just be wildly surprised if the officials from that game are, are going forward. Should that be made public? That hey, they're out because of this. If you know the system that they're going to be out if they don't perform and I think you could just look at who's on the court and say, oh, yeah, clearly they didn't make it to the next round. I don't know if the NCAA needs to come out and make a, a big honking deal, sending out a press release and saying these three officials uh, screwed it up. A ton of people over the weekend were calling for
1: full disclosure on the stuff. That it should be made public. That if coaches' jobs are on the line, players get to be mocked and chided when they make mistakes. You know, GOAT versus GOAT Should the officials be subjected to more public criticism?
2: What do you define as public criticism? That's the question, right? Like public criticism, the NCAA coming out and saying, slap on the wrist, you did bad. Um, If you want to go that way, it's hard for me to argue when people feel that way after they watch that situation. Now, public accountability for the officials is something that... I don't know that you're gonna see that in the way that everybody would wanna see it. I I don't know that it's ever gonna happen that way. You can ask for it all you want. I just don't think that's the way that, uh, that's the way the NCAA or anybody else is gonna approach it.
1: What about all the hubbub over the technical called on hanging on the rim?
2: Okay, so that's the one I was really hoping you would ask me about. That play right there. If you want public accountability for officials, that play right there is example number one of what accountability looks like for officials. That technical foul, I guarantee you, in the regular season, that does not get called. But the officials on the court know that they're being evaluated. They know that their performance in that game determines whether or not they get to go on to the next game, and they know that there's an evaluator sitting watching the game who's going to get after them after the game and say, well, that was a technical foul. He was hanging on the rim. Why didn't you call it? There's a lot more that they can do to justify that than not calling it when their evaluator comes in and tells them they screwed up other side of that one of
1: our buddies george cole said if you want to improve officiating start with uh, a simple three-game suspension after egregious mistakes the refs who the ref who called the tech against the illinois player dunking yesterday should be done for the year not saying he purposely tried to uh, uh whatever something about
2: the game but it was egregious three-game That's- suspension huh? No, that's ridiculous. I mean, and anybody who says <laughs> things like that, let me show up to your work the next time you make a mistake and suspend you for three games. Oh, by the way, it wasn't a mistake by the rule book, right? The yeah. rule book supports him making that call. Was it the <laughs> right call in the moment? I am all for that debate. But is it supported by what's in the book? Absolutely it is. And let me tell you something that's real about this. During the regular season, if an official screws up a rule, let's say that, you know, you, you misapply a rule that's in the book you absolutely might lose games from your assigner you might have the next two games taken off your schedule you might have an, a de facto suspension against you that way it absolutely happens and understand the kind of money that's involved when you talk about someone being suspended for a certain amount of games or losing games this is upwards of two and three thousand dollars a game depending on which conference you're working in if everyone wants to go check out their uh, bracket results to this
1: point, see if they have a chance to win the whole thing, it's up at lbsportsnetwork.com. It's brought to you by Finley Honda, iHeart Mac and Cheese, Sahara Las Vegas, and De Castro Verde Law Group. $1,500 first prize in uh, goodies and cash, so go check it out. Right now, uh, organization not getting any prizes because of what's going on off the ice and on the ice, and we'll get to the trade disaster Yesterday with VGK, uh, yeah, it's the Golden Knights. It's the Golden Knights. And what happened yesterday in the game? And they avoided the the math embarrassment. We'll get to that. Mark andre Fleury going to the wild. But last night, another lackluster effort. Can't get anything on the board. And then quick turnaround. Quick turnaround right to the peg where they're minus 175 dogs.
2: My God. Things move fast sometimes, don't they? Things move very fast for VGK. Um, Last night was a tough game to watch. Not only did they have COVID issues, not only were they down to Donoff, who knows, maybe for the rest of the season, maybe for a day or two if the trade gets ultimately rescinded, who knows? Uh, But this was a punchless team last night. Uh, The offense didn't threaten Minnesota at all at any point. During that game, Jack Eichel looked good, and he was out there moving the puck very well. But other than that, the Golden Knights had about a five-minute stretch at the beginning of the second period where they looked like they were going to be competitive. And other than that, only the goaltending of Logan Thompson kept them in that game. Logan Thompson was the bright spot. He actually played really well. That game easily could have been 5 or 6 nothing. So let me get on my
1: uh, William uh, William Hill app right now. Uh, So Jets minus 170?
2: I'm not jumping that. I don't think the Golden Knights play this poorly two nights in a row. Uh, but at the same time, you're not going to find me taking the other side. That, this, that game's a pass for me entirely. How do you know right now with the Golden Knights? How do you know? based What Golden Knights team are you betting on? Who's in the lineup? Who's playing with whom? Who's going to be in goal? Uh, who's going to be coaching? they got guys in the COVID protocol. You have no idea what you're betting You're betting on sweaters. You are betting on sweaters.
1: A uh, big day today in Las Vegas on the ground here in Sin City. Devontae Adams is here opening press conference. We'll give you some reaction to uh, Adams and what he's saying so far as he uh, appears to be uh, set up for the jersey number 17 with the Raiders. And then, yeah, we'll try to unravel exactly what happened yesterday. Is it just a minor gaffe on the part of the Golden Knights or someone out to lunch? And I I don't understand how you don't know, and the league doesn't know, and there's no clarity on someone's no-trade list. Like, what the hell is happening? Join the conversation on Twitter at ESPN Las Vegas. Not sure, what day? Uh... Number two, two miss for holding. I got Pete for holding here. Shut the. Whoa! <laughs> hot mic! Nothing better than the hot mic and the organ. Shut the. All right. We know how fiery GMGM uh, GM can get. Do you think there was any moment with George McPhee yesterday and Kelly McCrimmon and, and other people in the personnel department and the hops with Vegas Golden Knights on the Dedanoff? Uh Just mess, Candy, where someone in the room was like, shut up! Because that was... That's embarrassing. And we still don't have a clear picture of what the hell happened.
2: All right, so if you're just... Getting to this, if you haven't been paying minute by minute attention to the Golden Knights trade of a third line <laughs> winger and a salary dump for a draft pick, right. then uh, let's get you caught up here as yeah. the Golden Knights. They have to clear out some room in order to bring back Alec Martinez from injured reserve, eventually Mark Stone, et cetera, et cetera. So Evgeny getting who has shockingly, I guess 15 goals this year, I really wouldn't have noticed that for the most part to uh, traded air quotes. Anaheim right at the deadline the Golden Knights only brought him in from Ottawa this summer and so we hear the trades finalized okay second round pick salary dump blah 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 and then all of a sudden the Golden Knights just as the game is getting started last night send out a tweet that says uh we've become aware of an issue with the trade uh we'll we'll get back to you and the long version of this is that apparently Dodonoff has a no-movement clause or no-trade clause that's limited, so limited no-trade clause common in the NHL, to 10 teams. He had to submit that list to Ottawa. He submitted that list to Ottawa, and Ottawa apparently had the list. The Golden Knights never got the list when Dodonov was traded here, according to the Golden Knights. The NHL has given us a big shrug emoji As well, and from what we can deduce, even though no one said this out loud, apparently Anaheim must be on that no-trade movement clause. I'm using all the words on purpose. Because now we're dealing with maybe the trade doesn't happen at all. It's not completed yet. We don't know. Now the Players Association is involved. The Golden Knights are saying they had no idea that this no-trade clause was in there. The league doesn't know what's going on. The Donoff's people haven't really said a whole lot at this point, and the Golden Knights ended up playing short a player last night. We'll play short a player again tonight, and I don't know what that ultimately means for this team in the long term because if they have to keep the Donoff, I don't know how they're bringing back Alec Martinez and Mark Stone without some other gymnastics of other players who are important to this team going from injured reserve to long-term injured reserve and off the cap. Yeah, kind of complicated
1: because we can't predict who's coming back and then all the cap. Machinations, But if that if that's rock bottom that they tried to dump salary, now it's been screwed up and it may keep
2: them from bringing guys back. That's a complete disaster. Well, think about it this way. If they don't get to don salary off the books and that three plus million that they would clear when you average out all the salaries that went back and forth in this thing. You essentially are looking at the Golden Knights being close to 15 million dollars over the cap. Oh boy. Hey. 15 million dollars. Over the cap, and that means that this roster that you've been gradually trying to piece back together, the puzzle pieces aren't all going to fit unless they just start dump like outright waving and dumping players. Like there aren't a lot of answers for the Golden Knights, assuming everybody gets healthy here. Now, some would say it's a great problem to have, right? Well, you have more good players than you know what to do with, right? But what are the, what good are the players if you can't use them? So, who
1: do we point the finger at here? Is it VGK for not exploring every detail of the trade? Is this par for the course buffoonery from the NHL? And if on the VGK side, if they're like, this is a paperwork error. We had the deal done. This should be retroactive. We shouldn't be penalized because of league buffoonery. Or is it, like I said at the beginning, it's all in the Knights. It's their fault. It's not all on the
2: Knights. Look, we can't blame VGK for this. You can blame VGK for being in this situation in the first place, in this cap hell, where they have to do things like this, where they have to give up a second-round pick just to dump $3 million in salary. That's not revolutionary to have to give up draft picks to dump salary, but this team is in one of the worst cap situations you could imagine, and now the solution apparently is going to require one of two things. Either the league falling on the sword and saying we screwed up or someone's gonna have to sweeten this deal for evgeny Dodonov. someone's gonna have to say to Dodonov, well you know wink wink handshake handshake we'll extend the contract we'll help you out one way or the other in order to make this move happen because if he truly has this no trade clause and from everything we read it sounds like he does and everything was filed properly on his end then someone's gonna have to budge here and the golden knights have every reason to be upset is this common a ten team no trade list? It is. Yeah. I mean, and and sometimes it's a no trade move clause, sometimes it's a no movement clause. The no movement clauses are the ones that protect you from the expansion draft as well. So it could be a no trade clause, it could be a no movement, it could be a limited no trade like it is in this situation. Um look, Evgeny Dodonov never really stood out as a golden knight but he's a decent player in the NHL. And so that's not shocking to see him get at least some control over where he goes, especially to sign in Ottawa.
1: By the way, is there any rhyme or reason as to why Anaheim
2: would be on the no trade list? I mean, I can't wait till he gets to talk about this. I don't know, man. What what, what do you think? You think there's something about Orange County that scares him? It, not a big fan of the beaches, doesn't like the fish tacos, thinks they're better up in, in LA. Like, what do you think is the problem here? I, I've seen it suggested that it has to do with the state income tax in California and that he might not want to lose that salary. Um, but there are not a lot of guys who want to avoid California.
1: It seems the whole thing seems bizarre, very bizarre to me. And as you said, the NHL might have to fall on the sword. well, the other issue at hand here is there's not going to be anyone out there who's going to want a soft touch for the Golden Knights. I'm guessing that most organizations are already pissed off, one, that the Golden Knights are this good this early, two, that the Lightning played fast and loose with the salary cap within the rules, right, Use the rules to win a cup last year, and I'm sure a lot of teams were like, well, Knights, Knights tried to do it, but they screwed up. Sorry. Got to read between the lines. You don't get to benefit from this
2: salary cap horse crap. Oh, no. The Nikita Kucherov situation in Tampa Bay last year screwed this up for anyone who was ever thinking about doing it again. Now, the Golden Knights were thinking about doing it again, and hmm. if they move to Donoff here, they probably can shuffle those chess pieces without too much problem, although you're still going to end up with some players – who are notable names who have to go to long-term injured reserve to get Mark Stone back nine plus million dollars on his salary. The Dodonoff deal was probably going to make room for Alec Martinez, assuming he eventually comes back. But again, you're 15 million over the cap, and you have a Dodonoff trade that is supposed to clear about three and change that ain't gonna get it done so we can be mad at the nhl we can be mad at whoever screwed up the paperwork side of this but look at the situation we're talking about here in the first place what is the situation you're talking about the paperwork over dumping a player who has been one of your few consistent offensive performers by the numbers at least even if it hasn't felt like that on the ice and now you're trying to figure out how do you dump the guy so that you can put other guys on injured reserve it's a mess it's an absolute mess i love the golden knights going for it i think the jack eichel trade was absolutely the right idea but jack eichel makes 10 million dollars a year once you brought him back off long-term injured reserve you had other major issues to deal with
1: so tons of tumult right now around the vegas golden knights they're not in a great position when it comes to the playoffs in fact the peg is breathing down their neck so you know another, another loss to winnipeg here doesn't freaking help things Meanwhile, in the land of much tumult last year, until they made their playoff run, the Raiders, it's a happy sitch. Devontae Adams in today. I know you watched the very beginning of the press conference. We were both watching. It got started a little bit late. We're hoping to have uh, everything from Adams ready at the start of the show. We'll grab a lot of what he said as the show moves along. uh, Press conference started around 240 um, I thought it was interesting later in the press conference he talked about uh, this isn't all about football and he's got a lot going on in his life so we'll detail that but what did you see early on from
2: Adams when he was talking about coming to the Raiders you know I was a lot more interested in in how he would sound talking about this versus exactly what he would say and I was impressed uh, Devonte Adams sounds like a dude who is humble who is confident who is ready to get to work like There's a lot to like about Devontae Adams coming through uh, that press conference and giving the Raiders uh, something to build on from the start here. Now, factor this in as well. Like, the guy just got paid, right? I mean, got paid as much as any receiver, more than any receiver in the National Football League. You would hope he's going to come in and say the right things. But it was clear from what Devontae Adams said that, yes, it's about getting paid. Yes, it's about football. But when you're Devontae Adams and you probably get paid just about anywhere, there was a desire to be in Las Vegas and closer to his family in California. And he talked about the fact that his grandparents have never seen him play a game. Uh, that his grandparents haven't been in great health. That he wanted to be closer to his family. Like he said, apparently, this is a quality uh, of life thing. I was going to say, apparently, his dad drives everywhere. I, I don't know if he got into
1: detail about not wanting to fly, but that he drives everywhere. And he's like, well, driving to Green Bay is just about impossible. So, hey, you know, players are real people. There are real life concerns. And as you get older um, and, you know, your family hasn't been able to see you play, it is a factor to to get back closer to home. I'm amazed covering college basketball how often – amazed is not the right word. I guess I'm surprised every once in a while how often you hear a college basketball player say on a senior night or right before a senior night, Candy. My parents have never seen me play in person.
2: It's amazing, isn't it? It is. And, you, and especially in college, you don't think about – the socioeconomic backgrounds that a lot of players are coming from. And I'm not just talking about being poor. I'm talking about like even middle-class parents who have spent all their money to send the kid on a travel team all through high school and can't afford to come out to games. It's, it happens to a lot of kids. Speaking of college basketball, let's get to what's going on with the transfer portal, some names around the
1: UNLV running Rebels, and uh, Reno is already having a tough time. Seems like uh, lots of the players on that squad last year do not want to be around Steve Alford and Noodles Neal anymore.
0: The crew over at Finley Toyota speak Spanish, Thai, and even Persian. In fact, they speak 14 different languages. Come in and talk the universal language of big savings today. Now, back to Cofield and Company in the Finley Toyota studio.
1: Right back here. Cofield and Company. All right, do me a favor, uh, check our sound system. There's uh, two Devontae Adams bites as we're uh, grabbing this stuff as it rolls out. Our system is called your email. Adam Candy, Cofield, doing things on the fly here. Devontae Adams uh, reacting to his deal, talking about the money a little bit, talking about his family, why he made the choice of coming to Las Vegas and leaving Green Bay. I can't wait until follow-up interviews because I want to hear a lot more about his relationship with Aaron Rodgers. I have no idea if he's going to spill the beans, but that's completely fascinating, so we'll look into that. So, college basketball, we got the Sweet 16 coming up, but candy the rest of college basketball that didn't make the Sweet 16. Well, we got some teams playing in these other postseason tournaments, but you got a lot of coaching changes going on right now, and around the Mountain West Conference, you're going to see some players coming and going, and I saw the news today with Wyoming you know, I was trying to track the rosters about 10 days ago. I'm like, who's coming back? Who's not? It's not as easy as it used to be. One, because you don't know who's going to go into the transfer portal. Two, you don't exactly know COVID year, that whole deal, and also medical red shirts. So one of the guys I was looking at, and I'm like, man, this guy can come back again was Hunter Maldonado, who's a key player, top eight player in the conference and a key player for – Wyoming and its run into the NCAA tournament and Maldonado made an announcement today right
2: he did he gave the uh he gave the impression if you just looked at the social media post that's like I'm coming back and then if you read it really closely it's like I'm gonna test out the draft process but if I don't then I'm coming back so he's gonna not sign an agent go out there and test his NBA draft stock I, to me Cofield Hunter Maldonado has a whole lot of Bryce Hamilton on him this year uh, there are some obvious flaws in this game that I don't think are quite ready for the pros, but if he comes back another year and you know hones that craft in the Mountain West, then I think you're looking at a guy who could do some real damage. The, the problem right now is that I think anybody who watched the last couple of games for Wyoming is going to see Hunter Maldonado turning the ball over 10 times in the first four game and think that this is a guy who's not ready to handle the ball at the next level. If you were Hunter Maldonado, would you put your name in the
1: portal and see who came calling and see if you can get on a team where you're part-time the point guard but you play a little more of the the two position and you play with better competition
2: i mean it's reasonable that a kid at six seven could see how he can play it off guard right i mean all season long the numbers suggest that hunter Maldonado might not be the guy you want on ball all time he's averaging just about four turnovers per game six assists as well but That assist-to-turnover ratio isn't going to get it done. And a guy who has the size to be able to play the two, I agree with you entirely that that's something I would at least consider. And that option, of course, is still open to him.
1: If he comes back, Wyoming, no doubt, is a top-five team in the conference because unless there's other departures. I know uh, uh, Drake Jeffries, their three-point shooter, he said he was going bye-bye. But if they have uh, EK back and uh, the 6'8 kid Odin, who's a sophomore, and Wenzel, who's the uh, sophomore transfer from Utah, um, I thought their kid, uh, their uh, Reynolds, the freshman point guard, um, and that's you know that's another thing. If I were Reynolds, I'd be like, I actually want to play the point. So Hunter needs to move over. Um, but they have a nice group coming back, and it doesn't look like Linder's going to land anywhere unless there's some surprise opening that loves him. With a lot of the coaching openings having closed now, uh, Wyoming's going to be a really nice team with
2: Maldonado back. Yeah, and, I, and you didn't even mention uh, Ducell in there, another kid that I thought you know had had, had his moments for sure um, for that team. So, you know, that that's a roster that <laughs> in the Mountain West is going to be highly competitive, especially when you look at some of the subtractions from other places. And at 7,220 feet,
1: that arena, the times I've been there in recent years, because remember, UNLV didn't go up there this year, there's been less than 1,000 people in the arena. Now that will be a destination. You saw that emerging this year. The elevation is a complete pain in the ass. And so now you're going to have potentially, you know, eight, nine, 10,000 people in the arena. That's going to make it tough. Now we'll have to see what Reno is going to look like from a roster standpoint, because when they walked off the floor of the mountain West conference tournament, it's like, are any of these guys coming back? Because Grant Sherfield can leave and he'll be super coveted somewhere else. As, uh, as far as I know, Desmond Cambridge has one more year COVID year. I don't know if I'd stay around uh, Warren Washington, their best big man announced today. That
2: he's going by by, and he will be coveted by power five schools. Oh yeah, I mean, that that skill set with Warren Washington, absolutely, and Sherfield more than anything else. Uh, Sherfield feels like one of those guys where he's going to get on the right roster and be get the right coaching, and not feel the need to have to do everything the way he did for Alford's team last year, and be one of those guys who are like, "How did he get away?" I think that's the future of Grant Sherfield, and you know, uh, up in up in Reno. Tell me how you're feeling, Reno fans, uh, about 48 and 40 in three years of Steve Alford with seven years left on the contract. Tell me how you're feeling about uh, what Doug Newth handed out there, because I can't imagine you're feeling too good as you watch Eric Musselman uh, once again lead his team deep into the NCAA tournament. Yeah, when you're winning 25
1: games a year, maybe more like Alford was at New Mexico, then all the screaming and yelling and obnoxiousness, not only from him, but also from Craig Neal. Players, you can deal with it. But when you're a 500 program, and now the portal has opened up more than ever, and I'm sure other programs see you know, the way this thing has gone down the last couple of years, they have gotten calls. Every guy who is somewhat marketable on that team, and I don't mean from an NIL standpoint, but it's somewhat attractive on that team,
2: is getting calls and good offers. Well, think about who they had when that team was really banging heads in the NCAA tournament, right? The Martin twins are both in the NBA. Jordan Caroline, even though he didn't end up making, you know, an NBA type career out of things is a guy who's going to play pro for a long time. If he wants to play pro for a long time, like that is a team that was absolutely loaded. Like a guy like Lindsey drew from that team would be one of the stars of who they had right now. And you know, that guy was probably a fourth or fifth best player. So yeah, you know, they're not getting the same kind of player up, up in Reno that they were under Musselman.
1: We're not going to know everyone that UNLV is in on in the transfer portal. Uh, We saw last week uh, one of the best players on Princeton, Llewellyn, a guard, had heard from UNLV. I saw today a report that uh, Cincinnati has a kid, Mike Saunders Jr., who's actually sophomore eligible with the COVID year. Uh, He's in the transfer portal, and according to this uh, person on Twitter, uh, BYU, Miami, UNLV, Utah, Wichita State, Santa Clara, Iona, Grand Canyon, Nevada, Cal, Wyoming, Duquesne, several other schools. It's uh, at stock risers. Don't always, don't always take this is the gospel that someone has reached out to him. Because there was a player, I forget, uh, one of the Dakota schools who supposedly UNLV had reached out to, and then there were folks with the UNLV staff are like, eh, we really didn't talk to him. So uh, we'll see what happens with this Mike Saunders Jr., but another uh, guard. Um, it is clear, I believe, that the Rebels need a lead guard who can play 25 minutes a game and be in the mix with Keyshawn Gilbert and Jordan McCabe. I think it's going to be one of their highest priorities in this offseason, plucking players from the transfer portal. Join the conversation on Twitter at Cofield & Co. Cofield & Co.
0: Cofield & Company.
1: Providence-Friars is Andrew Fonts with the ball in hand, pumps the fist. And a sweet 16 again for the Razorbacks of Arkansas. Buffalo region, John Crispin was on the call on radio. That was the uh, CBS call with uh, Nestler. Let's get into the tournament. We'll uh, talk about what John Crispin saw in person, the former UCLA and Penn State player, uh, New Jersey high school star. So I actually want to start out, John. First of all, how you doing, buddy?
0: I'm good. Look, it's good to be relevant. It's like yes. this time of year where NCAA tournament's interesting because it's nearing the end of my relevance. So I'm soon to be in hibernation as a college basketball analyst. But the NCAA tournament's also that time of year where we realize how little we actually know about basketball because I wouldn't there, have predicted yeah. any of this stuff.
1: Yeah, certainly no one would have picked St. Peter's to get in. In fact, I thought Monmouth was going to beat them in their conference final. Mm-hmm. Um, you, uh, you can explain to the Vegas audience uh, because you're both uh, New Jersey folks. You, you, you have a little tie from high school ball to Shaheen Holloway, who's now the coach at St. Peter's. Yep. I think you know Shaheen and St. Patrick were at the end of their run with him and Harrington as you and your brother were coming on the scene with uh, Pittman High School.
0: Yeah, now let's just say that, that their team was a little different than ours. Um, they actually had a ton of talent. We were just a bunch of local boys from a small town, two square miles, 9,000 people who grew up playing together. Uh, they were on another level. They were the team that we would watch play and go, thank God we don't have to play them because uh, we look like superstars playing against a bunch of dudes who are six feet and under. Uh, that was a whole other level. But, but how about what he's doing right now? I mean, it's funny how the game, too, you know, you go from kind of – you know, stuck in a weird corner of Jersey City. No one really knows about you, too. All of a sudden, you're basically the coach in waiting at Seton Hall. I <laughs> mean, you make a nice little run. So good for Shaheen Holloway, but good for the program, man. You got to give these kids credit. You know, you, you go into that first matchup and you say, guys, let's just go out and have fun. You know, we have nothing to lose. The thing is, Kentucky gave them a few opportunities to feel confident. And the confidence part is what keeps you going. The, the question is, you know, is there any confidence left? And what's the matchup going to be like against Purdue? I, I sure wouldn't want to be playing Purdue.
1: Yeah, if you're a small team, is it advantage to you? Because, you know, you can you can play small ball and force their bigs out, or is it just a daunting task because they're so freaking gigantic?
0: Yeah, look, I think it's a daunting task. Now, again, I've been wrong the whole tournament. I wouldn't have had St. Peter's beating uh, Oscar Sheepway in Kentucky, but – they have two really good bigs, and they're two really different bigs. The challenge there is if you play small, you play fast. And the issue with that is Purdue's pretty good at playing fast. You wouldn't think so considering they're bigs, but they score 80-plus points a game. Now, The criticism of Purdue earlier this year was the fact that they didn't play defense as well as they typically do. And I actually liked it. I thought it was good. It's the same thing with Kansas. People were critical of Kansas, saying they don't defend well enough. And they're like, well, they score 83 points a game. I mean, it isn't the idea to outscore your opponent. So all you have to do is be adequate defensively. And I think that's something that almost sets Purdue up to be better in the NCAA tournament than they may have been in the Big Ten. Because you have to be built a certain way to, to win in the Big Ten. You have to keep games in the 60s and low 70s to be able to grind out wins in the Big Ten. But in the NCAA tournament, you got to score. And I think Purdue's got the perfect combination of both. I would say if I'm St. Peters, I would take like my 10th, and 11th, and 12th guy on the bench And just say, dude, you guys are going to be goons today. I need you to go waste every single foul that you've got. And we're going to slow the game down. You know, Even though we're small, we're going to slow it down. And we're just going to make these guys live at the foul line. I know it sounds crazy, but I honestly might consider doing that.
2: Well, I'll tell you what, John, with what we've seen thus far in the tournament in a couple of games, it seems that the officials might allow a little bit more of that, maybe even than... During the regular season, uh, you know, Baylor certainly got pretty physical in making that comeback against yep. North Carolina. We saw a lot of that in the TCU uh, game against Arizona. I mean, do you think that's something that teams are acutely aware of that maybe you can get away with a little bit more right now than you might during the season?
0: Well, the other thing that you might be able to do is really lean push. I mean, yeah, they're allowing a, a ridiculous amount of physicality. I mean, to the point where it's it's actually not even basketball. Uh, it's it's been frustrating to watch at times because I had one of those games at Buffalo that was, I think it was in the low 50s and 40s, that, that New Mexico State game uh, with Arkansas. And, and it was. There's too much hand checking. There's a lot of pushing. But against big, if you as a smaller player can really push and lean on a big, you catch a guy like, you know, Zach Eady who turns into you, you take an elbow to the head, they're likely going and looking at that as a flagrant one. So it's not a bad idea to just go send guys out there, be as physical as you could possibly be, frustrate the mess out of the bigs, and maybe end up getting lucky with some flagrant ones, possibly flagrant two, as we saw Brady Manick got taken out of the game for North Carolina with a flagrant two.
2: Well, you talk about the physical Arkansas team, and obviously there's a tie back to the state of Nevada here with Eric Musselman, the success that he had up in Reno, and here he is again uh, with this team in the Sweet 16. Uh, what did you think of Arkansas? What do you think of its prospects uh, going up against Goliath here in the Sweet 16?
0: Well, it's interesting. I, I saw a high ceiling and I saw a lower floor than I thought I expected from Arkansas. And, and the floor is tied to JD Note. I, I think he's a terrific basketball player. He can make anything happen on the floor, uh, including bad decisions. And I think that's the issue. I, I saw Mus and first off, I love Mus. I've always liked Mus. Uh, my brother played for Muss a little bit uh, at, at camp with the with the Golden State Warriors and got to know him pretty well. And And Muss has such an infectious personality. You know, we 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 almost don't say that enough, where it's not just fluff. It's actually real. He really is that guy. And, and in a way, he's that guy for his team. J.D. Notay is their leader, yet he's not a vocal guy. And he has been working. Muss has been working to get J.D. Notay to make better decisions, because when he makes great decisions, They're scored in the 70s and 80s. There's good rhythm to the game. There's less bad shots, more ball movement. And I think the challenge is you need notate to play well, but you still have to have them play within the boundaries. And I think at times that's been the issue. I mean, shoot, that was the issue for Auburn, right? You have guards who could take over a basketball game, but if you don't play within the boundaries, you can lose the game. So I think that's where they have to be careful. They really have to make better decisions if they want to continue to advance. Obviously they've got their hands full against arguably the best Uh, Team in the country, and I roll my eyes. By the way, when I say arguably, because who really freaking knows at this point who the best team in the country is?
1: What do you think happens? Gonzaga going to blow Arkansas off the floor? It's uh, minus nine. Uh,
0: Yeah, look, I I think Gonzaga handles handles business. I I think there's too many matchups that Gonzaga can take advantage of, particularly the one inside Uh, with Drew Timmy. I mean, what do you do with Chet Holmgren? Well, you're not going to play your most physical defender in Jalen Williams on on. Chet Holmgren, you're just not going to do it. You're going to play him in the post. And I think Drew Timmy is just so skilled. The footwork he's got in the post, I know we talk a lot about that. I, I would I would have a tough time believing that Gonzaga wins by less than 12. I just have I have that much confidence in their versatility and the fact that Arkansas is going to one, even though they can play defense, they're great, they're good on the ball. They don't have the size to defend that that depth, the length of all that Gonzaga has. Plus, Gonzaga's comfortable with pace. If you can pick up the pace of the game, Gonzaga's going to run you out of the gym.
1: John Crispin, analyst for ESPN, was doing the games this weekend for Westwood One. You heard him on uh, ESPN Las Vegas on uh, Westwood One. All right, what happens with uh, Providence? Can they keep this going? Can they compete with Kansas?
0: Yeah, Providence is a great story. I think it's a good matchup for Providence. you got old dudes. Um, the, the thing that Providence does not have that Kansas has is one of the best players in the country in Baji. And if you follow the NIT, if you follow the NCAA tournament, the best player, uh, not just the best team, the best player usually wins the game. And I think that's the toughest matchup. I like Al Durham uh, or Oshayabaji in, in terms of an experienced player that can defend. But I just struggle to think and see that Providence can score enough. They like keeping games close, and then they like to be able to pull away with good execution down the stretch. I struggle to see them keeping it too close throughout the course of this game because of Kansas' firepower. I and mean, Christian Brown has been terrific, and we haven't talked about him enough. He's a tough matchup. He's great in the open floor. And Providence has been good at slowing the game down, making it a half-court game, but not when you have too many weapons. I think that's where they get hurt. And Providence has been those, that team where if they keep it close, they're probably going to win the game. If they don't, they're probably going to get blown out. So this one could be one where either the game's close and Providence wins, or Kansas runs away by 20, and I actually like Kansas in this one.
1: UCLA getting a little um, shorted on respect. They're minus two against North Carolina.
0: Yeah, I, I think so, and I don't know how they're playing. You know, is, is Jaime Hawkins healthy? Is he going to play? I have a tough time thinking Jaime Hawkins isn't going to play every single minute he could possibly play. Um, I like UCLA in this one pretty favorably. I just think they all season have been a Final Four caliber team. What they've struggled with is they haven't figured out that Jaime Hawkins is their best player until recent. They've been playing through Johnny Juzang as if he's their best player, and the reality is he's just not right now. Maybe he was late last season, but Jaime Hawkins is the toughest matchup on the floor, and when Jaime Hawkins plays well, Jules Bernard is much better. And I think that's what you start to look at. Who makes everybody else better? Well, it's Jaime Hawkins because of the matchups he gets at that stretch four position switches, Hawkins goes in the post. They don't get switches. He stays out around the perimeter in a pick-and-pop situation, and that's where he's at his best. You know, I like North Carolina. I like what they've been doing, and I think the matchup between Brady Manick and Jaime Hawkins is interesting. I just think UCLA is that much better.
1: It's going to sound crazy, but can Duke handle the physicality and defense of Texas Tech?
0: Yeah, you know what? I think Duke gave us everything that they could give us to get through Michigan State, and I thought Michigan State played pretty well. I just think Duke had better players. Uh, and what what surprised me a little was the fight we saw from Duke defensively. They got physical. They pushed back. And I thought that was something I haven't really seen since they played Gonzaga earlier this year. I mean, earlier this year they played Gonzaga, and they look like the best team in the country. And then the season happened. You know, Then you realize that teams are going to figure you out, and you have to adjust on the fly. Duke hasn't been able to do that. I mean, losing at home to close out Coach K's, career at Cameron Indoor Stadium was was just inexcusable to me in terms of the effort that was applied. We finally saw that effort against Michigan State. I have Texas Tech going to the Final Four over Gonzaga. I think they're that good. I think they can score. I think physically they're one of the toughest defenses in the country, and I think they have four or five of the toughest matchups because you got four or five dudes who just go out and ball. I think Mark Adams has done a a terrific job with that program.
1: John, we appreciate the time. We know you got a busy schedule. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, man. Enjoy it, guys.
1: There he is. John Crispin, former UCLA player, Penn State player, doing radio for Westwood One. A lot of analyst work, especially in the postseason for ESPN. I'll go back to the beginning of the conversation, Candy. There are times I watch college basketball now, and I'm like, man, where's the time gone? I'm freaking old. My reference that I was making with John Crispin to Shaheen Holloway, who really no one No one knows of Sheehan Holloway until this weekend. You did. You did. Okay, you did. You did. East Coast, Uh, baby. East Coast. Yeah. Um, He was on a tremendous team in northern New Jersey. Al Harrington was his teammate. And now all these years later, he's now in a position. He wound up going to Seton Hall. Uh, Now he's in a position to get the job from Seton Hall. And this is a pretty big jump up. This is a pretty big jump. And I think Todd Golden from San Fran to Florida is a big jump up. Um, St. Peter's at Seton Hall is a pretty big jump up, and it's a weird situation at Seton Hall. I think Kevin Willard was doing a good job, but not a great job. And Maryland got super smitten with him. I'm I'm not sure that that they nailed the hire uh, Maryland did with Kevin Willard.
2: Think about it this way: if you're a UNLV fan trying to put some context to this, like I'm familiar with Shaheen Holloway because we're talking about a a New York guy who was very quick to correct them on the CBS broadcast when they said, you're a Jersey guy. It's like, oh, no, no, no. I'm a New York guy. I'm just here to represent Jersey. Good for you, Shaheen Holloway. No, I remember those days with Seton Hall. But if you're a UNLV fan, ask yourself about a guy like Dave Rice, right? Can you go home again? And that's really, for me, the question when it comes to a guy like Shaheen Holloway is I don't think the step up is above him. The guy seems to have the personality to handle a big job. I, I, I just wonder... Where the expectations go when you're a guy who's an alum, when you're a guy who has a history at a school? Sometimes, to me, those expectations kind of get doubled and doesn't seem fair to the guy coming in right from the jump.
1: Finley Toyota. They'll do anything to sell you a car. No Toyota problem is too tough, too large, or too small. Keep your Toyota running like a Toyota.